Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Nico Franks. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Coming up in this episode, we hear from Max Alexander, CEO of Secret Cinema, the entertainment company that specializes in huge immersive film and television events about how it's adapting to the pandemic. And Jonathan Jones, MD of production studio Ember, which has just delivered a natural history show with a unique twist to Netflix. But first, Adil Amini, freelance producer and founder of The TV Mindset, a new industry initiative that aims to provide professional and peer support for freelancers. It's fair to say Adil Amini's been pretty busy during the pandemic, organising webinars to inform the TV industry on topics such as ableism and systematic racism alongside his day job as a producer on ITV and STV Productions' studio game show Catchphrase. He spoke to C21 about why the mental health of freelancers requires immediate action, having had first-hand experience of the toll it can take when he suffered a breakdown, and why the TV industry cannot afford to return to the pre-pandemic bad habits of toxic workplace cultures and ignoring ableism. We began by talking about what role the TV mindset has to play within the industry. The fact that people see TV Mindset as a resource and a support group and somewhere they can turn to and speak freely is such a massive compliment. And the the amount of messages I've had, even when I've had a tough day, I look at those messages and I think, okay, do you know what? I can't stop. I don't want to stop because even one of those messages could have been me, you know, four years ago and it could have stopped me from spiraling. And I'm so, so glad I'm able to provide that to people. So it is, it has been quite tough. And then obviously midway through the crisis, we had another crisis, which was Black Lives Matter. And as a, you know, as a South Asian man from a Muslim family, who's in this TV industry as well, it's like you fall into the intersection. Weirdly, all the things that have happened during this crisis have affected me, both as a TV worker, as a human being, And again, it just felt like I have to do something in these situations. And not only that, I have the platform to do it. I have the platform and the privilege to do it. And I'm hoping to use that in in the right way wherever possible. In regards to freelancers, they have been the hardest hit along those working in TV due to the, the pandemic. And you've spoken before about a kind of culture of gratitude in the freelance industry which kind of can make the challenges of working in TV, it can make them even harder and almost put up with certain things. And that, that links in with the, the, the conversation around racism as well. So tell me a bit about how those, those work together. I think that there's two different cultures actually that work together. One is the culture of gratitude and the other is the culture of fear. And we've actually done a webinar on the culture of fear and where it comes from. And we, we realize that, you know, on each level, the, the broadcasters, the indies and with the freelancers, there is work to be done. And, and there are steps that all three major stakeholders can take to combat that. But it is that culture of gratitude, firstly, which is you should be grateful to be here, you know, specifically for a minority. There aren't many people who look like you and you feel like I've earned my place and I've got to do whatever I can to keep it and not ruffle any feathers. And then on the flip side, you look at that, you take that and it starts instilling more of the fear in you saying, okay, if I do speak up against exploitation, I'm not going to be employed again. Somebody's going to call me a troublemaker and they will give that job to a hundred other people and I won't be able to pay my rent or bill. So there's this really weird sense of almost, I would say, abuse and exploitation that does occur. And it's it's just fed those two cultures just sort of feed into each other and create for a really negative environment and also incredibly damaging for your mental health. 
companies are trying to emerge from the crisis. And I think, you know, what a lot of people would like is perhaps for everything to just go back the way it was and nothing ever mentioned and all of these problems, you know, just, just sort of get swept on the carpet. I can't let that happen. And certainly in the productions that I've worked on in the recent past, I'm really proud to say that there are things being put in place and things that have been put in place that looked after both freelancer and staff mental health, production mental health, but also just all of the things that, you know, I campaign um, against, whether it's hours or rates, anything, you know, they've looked after that. So it makes me think that, that it is possible, but with willing, and you have to keep those conversations going. So I think there will be change, but the good thing about TV Mindset and other groups is that there's, um, there's a public record of what we've, we've gone through. There's an open space where people have been talking. And again, one of my duties is to make sure that people have nowhere to hide after this. So even though there's a sense that, okay, things are going back to normal and freelancers are just grateful for work, I can guarantee 100% that these conversations will be continuing. And there's something, you know, we are planning at the moment that is quite possibly the biggest thing we've ever done. Um, I can't talk about it too much yet because it's not been officially announced, but basically there will be, you know, things will be out in the open and we will be taking it all the way to the top. So it would be interesting to see what comes out of that and whether this industry is really willing to put its money where its mouth is when it comes to caring for quite, well, arguably the largest stakeholder in the industry and the stakeholder that keeps it going. You were part of a panel over the summer that discussed ableism in the industry and how rife it is. What needs to happen is people need to wake up. I think they need to wake up to the realities of the workers uh, that exist in this industry, but also the barriers that exist from entry level all the way up to senior progression. I think people need to step outside of themselves and their own egos to examine what really needs to happen. They also need to potentially take more time to put the work in. Here's an example. The first ever TV mindset session I did was without BSL interpretation and captioning. And one of the panelists then messaged me and said, have you thought about this? You know, after that, I got in touch with BSL interpreters, captioning companies, and, you know, for the most part, started paying for it from my own pocket, got some help from the film and TV charity. But, you know, what that said to me was, it was about willing and about a sacrifice. And I thought it was worth making because I'm all about banging the drum of inclusion, but, you know, it has to start with me. I have to set the example and set the precedent of what I want this industry to look like. If the rest of the industry and then certainly the, the people at the top can start doing that, that's what would help. Inclusion and access being built, being built in from the start is such a key thing that says, you know, it, it, it's twofold. One, it's more inclusive and rounded, but also it says to a disabled freelancer, you're thinking about me from the very start. You want me to be included from the very start. I'm not just a bolt-on or something that, you know, is an inconvenience. But that's what it says to me as well, that the fact that you're providing these things and you're thinking about them means so much. With both race and disability and other, you know, marginalised groups, what we'll see is that because access, for example, is a cost that could be sacrificed, or people think that it could be sacrificed, you know, obviously it can't be, but if, if people start thinking like that, and I know there's a group already who said, you know, we can't provide interpreting or captioning because we just don't have the money at the moment. You know, therefore they think, okay, the first thing that's expendable is our, the, the access we provide for disability. What, what that will result in is 
uh, really homogenous industry of essentially white, well-off, able-bodied people. And that's not an industry I want to work in. It's not an industry whose output I want to watch. And we've seen a lot of announcements from I think all the UK public service broadcasters, so BBC, ITV, Channel 4 and Channel 5 have all announced either initiatives and with money behind it. What have you made of some of those? I think it's been a mixed bag. A lot of them look good initially, and then you interrogate them, and they sort of you start seeing the holes in them. For example, the BBC's £100 million across three years is essentially 33 million for all programming and everything they're trying to do per year, which really isn't that much when it comes to programming. But you see the figures, and then you sort of interrogate them also percentages around things, you sort of measure them up. One of the companies that I've had a direct involvement in, and I think is a good template, is STV. STV have done a varied amount, thanks to, you know, a lot of their internal groups um, and steering groups. And, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work around them. And they've tackled everything from the ground up, you know, from entry level to mid-level career progression to localised targets so that their company doesn't have to just tick a box generally. It's right, okay you know, their office in Glasgow. So the Glasgow percentage, uh, you know, is reflected on local population. That's how, you know, so the London percentage, for example, it's not the company-wide thing, because otherwise you might have all of your diverse talent in one office. But no, each office has to reflect the local, pop the local you know, black, Asian, diverse population around it, which I think is a really good step. For advertising, they've lowered advertising costs for black, Asian, ethnically diverse businesses. Uh, which again is a great step they're doing more you know on-screen work uh they're doing internal you know whistleblowing racism and appointing diversity and inclusion inclusion officers and advisors at board level which i know another uh, a few other companies have done so you know there are they're definitely good and bad ones but again i think that the um there's willing which is good but what we now have to do is interrogate everything and the bame tv task force for example are doing really great work on that front it's for incredible young women of color who are just absolutely storming it and you know having conversations at the highest level on that front and they are being very very rigorous and i think now is a time to make sure that even when we do go back to work exactly as i said with mental health um, and, and general well-being is that when we go back to work, these things can't slip away and that every company honours these uh, commitments, but also builds on them. This industry and a lot of industries image was built in a systemically racist environment. We're not just fighting these battles on the TV front. This is a national slash international thing. So any company and industry that was built in that image is going to need a little bit of a, you know, reimagining from the ground up and obviously a lot of institutions aren't willing to do that but we can give it a try and again see that willing and see what companies and channels and things you know can start reassessing things so that their foundation is changed as a freelancer so you've been working recently on productions that have been able to get back uh, into the studio so you were working on the itv show catchphrase so how did that go and how did it look in in a covid19 era Catchphrase, I will say, it's the third time I've done it in 12 months, and I've never really repeated jobs across a 12-year career. Um, that, for me, an STV, based on the experiences I've had in the last six months, I started in January, it's the model of going forward. I've never known a happier, healthier, safer production where everyone from the CEO to my immediate line manager has been so attentive and so nurturing and caring of, of needs. 
there's a cynical side of people that will think, well, of course, because if they don't and they screw you over a deal, you've got TV mindset and you'll bring it down. And do you know what? I, 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 I know those people really well and it's not, that's definitely not it. But I certainly, you know, for other companies, I don't mind exploiting that fear if it means a happier and healthier workplace. The thing about doing catchphrase recently, the timing of it was incredible because I do get quite tired and it is quite hard doing all of this and it can be quite lonely. And there's a lot that you absorb, especially as I've got, you know, personality disorder as well that, that I have to manage and, and my own mental health and things around me, you know, an actual social life, you know, whatever it is. And it reminded me that this is why I do what I do. It's so much fun. And I loved studio so much. Weirdly, it was possibly the most fun I've ever had in studio. Everyone was in it together. We almost knew that it was going to be more difficult. So more of us put the effort in to just make it happier and, and, and have more fun. And I came back, I miss it already, but I came back thinking, this is why I fight because I love what I do and, and it makes people happy, but it can be done in a really safe and healthy environment that isn't taxing on your hours, your mental health. You know, obviously studio weeks are always going to be tough, but there's just so much built in from the start. And again, looking at COVID and the protocols that people are um, putting in place, it makes me think, okay, so you could possibly do that from, for, from a diversity or access or disability inclusion point of view, you could look at, you know, revamp your productions and start making these concessions if you want to. And it's taken an uh, international pandemic for people to realise that. But for me, it's like, right, okay, it can be done. So why, why isn't it being done? And why can't we take a lot of this stuff into the future? But certainly on that show, it was an incredible experience. It always is. Uh, you know, it's such a brilliant team, tiny compared to most shows. But it is, for me, a model of going forward. And if somebody says to me, we can't do it, I will use it as an example and say, no, you can because I've lived it. Adil Amini. Secret Cinema, the entertainment company that specialises in immersive film and television events based on IP such as James Bond and Stranger Things, has had to have a rethink in light of the ban on mass gatherings in key territories such as the UK and US. It's aiming to get people out the house post-lockdown in a safe and fun way by revolutionising the drive-through cinema, kicking off with a Stranger Things experience scheduled for later this year in LA. CEO Max Alexander told C21 about the plans and discusses why high-end TV series offer the company's creatives lots more options when it comes to storytelling than movies do. We began talking about how Secret Cinema has adapted to the pandemic so far, with living room-based events on cult films such as the Grand Budapest Hotel. We have this very close-up horizon of what, what can we do right now, while at the same time, you know, we're, um, we're working really closely with Disney and Netflix for the next, you know, for, you know, for the bell to be rung so that when that bell is rung, we're able to um, uh, open our, 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 our traditional shows again. So, so in terms of close-up, so we had a bit of fun over the summer um, with, uh, with a, a, a project that we called Secret Sofa, which was basically born of the realisation, particularly during the working at home, don't leave the house except to exercise part of um, this wretched year, uh, that um, we actually, we were kind of running out of ways to differentiate the weekend from the week. I, I, I'm, I'm an extremely old man, uh, but I still find myself living for Friday evening. I mean, it's such, a, it's such an amazingly sort of liberating, life-affirming event, even if all that I do is get a bottle of scotch and sit weeping in my pants in front of Netflix. But, um, but uh, people were losing themselves. There was this un non 
differentiated featureless weeks that just fucking went off. So we started um, this sort of silly thing where we would host, uh, 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 you know, a viewing, if you like, uh, of a movie, one of our movies. And then we would do it as though it was one of our shows. So we would send you, we did Grand Hotel. And so we sent you an invitation from Gaston and people dressed up like lunatics. I dressed up like a lunatic, all my family dressed up. And then we watched a movie together. And then um, we hosted a sort of dance party. And, and, and we did it in a sort of secret cinema way. So, you know, we had some wonderful actors at the front who were calling up people who were on Facebook doing sort of silly things, teaching people how to dance, that kind of good stuff. Um, we had Baz Luhrmann turn up to one of them, actually, turn up to Romeo, which was very, um, very nice. So we looked really hard at, um, at, 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 at what the obvious COVID-friendly or COVID-permissive models were. And drive-in is obviously one. And it's just really hard to make a buck on drive-ins, right? <laughs> if you're going to do them well. Because if, you want, if you've got a screen, you can only have a certain amount of cars looking at the screen without compromising people's sight lines. And we didn't just want to just do a straight drive-in because we're secret cinema, we want to have some performance around it. So we've done one. We've got one down in Goodwood where our good friends at, at, at Goodwood who have a sort of similar ludicrous approach to a love of dressing up and a love of adopting other people persona and a certain kind of rakish joy in life. That was the place that we could go and do the show, the kind of drive-in that we would want to do. There are three formats that we think are theatrically incredibly rich and also safe. Obviously, those productions will feel more like rides than, um, than maybe our traditional milling about, but they will be open and with actors and call and response. There are a lot of empty car parks. One assumes that there's going to be a lot of empty car parks for a real long while. Where, what can you do with a, when you're doing a, a secret cinema event based on a TV series that you can't do when it's a movie? Oh, well, you can't do a screening for a start. <laughs> because, uh, and we thought really hard, we thought really um, hard about this because we thought about TV. Uh, they're amazing. I mean, they're, the worlds that are conjured by television are, 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 are to some extent because, you know, they've got um, unbounded hours of canvas to write upon. And to some degree, kind of, richer, more compelling now than, um, than, than, than the movie was, not for people to say that. But uh, our format has always been, we tell the story of, the, of the, what happened just before the film started, right? To give it some sort of logical narrative structure for the night. So with Bond, we told the story of why it was that at the start of Casino Royale, the 007 license was unoccupied. So we really told the death of the previous holder of that of that story. So that that structure is kind of kind of pretty easy to to kind of comprehend. And it's an, an enormous privilege to to write these pre-stories to sort of get to mess around with canon. But in the end that doesn't really um it doesn't challenge the future so much. These stories they go so broad that you can write entry points into the world that they don't just have to be linear. They can sort of do you know what I mean? They can kind of bounce around the kind of the core canon, which is really fun if you're a fan, right? Because um, there are stories that you don't encounter in the sort of the core narrative, but it's like, it's like just being able to look at what's just off screen. So you've got partnerships with Disney and with Netflix. Yes, we do. Are you in kind of talks with other TV companies about mining their libraries? Well, I mean, 
it's, you could spend, I could spend the rest of my life working with just Netflix and, and Disney. I mean, you're not going to run out of, uh, of um, great stories to represent with those guys. We, um, obviously, we were working with uh, Lionsgate on Dirty Dancing, uh, which was going to be the summer show. It's now next summer show. Uh, we talked to Warner Brothers all the time. Uh, we've worked with Sony in the past. Uh, HBO have got amazing content. I mean, to some degree, we're sort of, our format is very accommodating of, of stories. So, you know, we've done a music production uh, in the past. I think we'll do more music uh, going forward where we take, you know, an artist's work and build the world for that artist. I know you mentioned previously that expansion into other US cities was on the agenda, but I was wondering if maybe, you know, New Zealand suddenly <laughs> looks a lot more appealing now rather than other US yeah. cities, given, given the difference in how the pandemic's yeah. affecting those places. New Zealand does it really appealing, doesn't it, actually? Uh, except all of the uh, terrible tax avoiding, you know, world ruination tech billionaires have all decided to relocate themselves there. Look, America will sort this out. It, it, it's a country of um, uh, extraordinary resources and, and, and resilience, uniquely, appallingly led. But they will sort it out. And, um, and you can see that happening in, in New York now. I mean, the states will take control and the ones who fail will be punished by the voters, inshallah. You know, we, we're, we're 100% committed to our, our US strategy. So next year, I would expect to have a, an outdoor touring show going around the US. And I'd expect to have the property that we just talked about up in at least LA, but maybe some other cities. And the moment, the moment I have permission to put a big Disney show on, it'll be ready to go. Max Alexander. Described as Pixar meets planet Earth, Tiny Creatures is a new eight-part Netflix original series from Ember Productions that explores the hidden worlds and epic survival stories of little animals across the US. Ember MD Jonathan Jones told C21 about the twist behind the dramatic nature series and gave his take on how he thinks both the pandemic and tech will change the factual TV business in the future. Our conversation started with Jonathan discussing how demand for the kind of remote production Ember specialises in has changed during the pandemic. Well, for us, it's kind of been a little bit as business as normal because our company came from a background in natural history. So we're used to, you know, traveling the world, working in very extreme, harsh environments, often with PPE and those kind of restrictions, but with a small, very highly skilled team. So often with natural history, we would, you know, go to a location with only two or three of us, but have to come back with, you know, a Planet Earth 2 uh, sequence. So actually now COVID, of course, is challenging and it has its own differences. But when it comes down to our kind of core team and the way the business was made up, we have kind of a very small, highly effective team that works perfectly. It's certainly in the advertising world now where um, agencies or campaigns are looking to reduce their crew numbers or their, you know. So so in that sense, we're kind of already quite well versed in, in that approach. The, the main thing really is that the small team isn't a compromise. And I think that's a really key fundamental. So, for example, if, if it was myself on location, you know, I'm 
fully versed in shot over uh, helicopter aerials, I could be flying a drone, I can do long lens, I could be shooting phantom, or I could, you know, be shooting macro all within the space of the day. And that's where our business model is very different to kind of a traditional production company where often those different services are either a service provider or a different individual. So within a day on a, a project that we've coming up, we'll be doing tracking shots with vehicles, we'll be doing lifestyle elements with talent, and you know, we'll be doing drone all at the same time with a very, very small team. And I think that's just our difference. And also the fact that we bring in post right up front. So for us, post-production isn't an after. It's kind of all part of the creative journey. So so we I feel really strongly is that my background was in post, that post it, it isn't that whole like fix it in post type thing, is not what we've ever been about. And you know, embracing post-production right at the start in terms of the concept and understanding what everything you do on set is what's going to affect you in post and ultimately affect your bottom line. That's that's how we've built our business and making sure that our kind of creative that we sell into clients on day one is what's delivered. And um, yeah, that's just been Ember's kind of ethos. And so the Netflix show that you've produced, uh, Tiny Creatures, so that's a natural history show with a twist orientated around those heart in mouth moments that you get on some amazing shows like Planet Earth and Planet Earth 2 of animals in peril. Yeah, so Tiny Creatures is very much an animal drama. And so it's very different to a traditional blue chip natural history series where the action unfolds and you're there to observe it. We uh, were taking our years of experience working in commercials and applying that to the natural history genre. So, so we basically pre-visualize, pre-storyboard and animate the whole show ahead of actually filming a whole frame. So based on our really deep experience of working with animals, we knew what was practical, what was feasible, also what was safe for the animal's well-being, etc. And we were able to fashion that into a show. And bear in mind, this is a very, very different genre. And arguably, it's this kind of unique genre. There's nothing really else out there like it. We knew we needed to help Netflix kind of understand what we were trying to do because there was no other show that they could go, oh, it's like that. But it's not. It's not like that or that. You know, it's completely different. So we needed to pre-visualize it so that they could buy into it and understand what our ambition was. Historically, there's nothing really like it. We've, we've kind of fused natural history and drama together. I would argue with the kind of natural history aesthetic but with the storytelling of Pixar and because it's so unique. Take me through the shoot so when did it take place where and was it impacted at all by the pandemic? So we were very fortunate to finish production for photography prior to uh, Covid hitting us so we shot about 90% of the show in our Ember studios in the UK and then we would shoot per episode you know, three days on location in the States. So every story is set in North America. So we would go on to into North America in the given locations to kind of bring an element of the real environment into the, our studio set builds. And then in terms of COVID, uh, we, we delivered the whole series whilst on lockdown. So we were able to do remote HDR grades and use new emerging technology, including uh, a remote VO session with the artist in his LA house that he recorded via his phone with some new, really new, amazing microphones. So we did a Dolby Atmos, um, you know, VO session over his phone, which is incredible. So although everything seemed to be thrown at us, certainly at the end when COVID was was hitting, we still were able to, you know, finish the series, which was which was amazing. And this this series is a series of firsts. You know, there's no other natural history series that has been made in this way. Like it's a long commercial. And for example, we did. We made four hours of television, but we didn't shoot a single pickup frame. 
a lot of blue chip natural history documentaries they go to great lengths to emphasize that everything is authentic and and true and can sometimes come in for criticism if it feels like the producer's hand is is too keenly felt whereas with this series obviously it's completely inauthentic so how do you position it to the viewer in terms of letting them know that what they're seeing isn't real i think we're completely honest about it we're not we're not in any way trying to say this is planet earth three that's not what we're about we're saying this is an animal drama so this is a roller coaster ride for audiences of all ages based on science. So everything you see in this series and experience in this series is fact. We're not saying that the animals have superpowers and can leap over buildings, it's, it's real. And what we have done to build on that drama element is add an anthropomorphical kind of twist. So we have put human emotions, we've tried to make, uh, tell the audience how that animal is feeling at that given time to give it a bit more of a narrative twist. So, you know, this, this show is a complete hybrid. There is no, it's not trying to be a hardcore, purist natural history show it's trying to be a drama with that's based on fact with a natural history element and a little bit of sprinkling of, of, of fantastical um you know storytelling i think that's what's really really important for us is to is to be very honest and say you know you know this this was a controlled recreation of what life could be like for these animals i mean it's really telling the story of those little animals that you don't see. So when you see an owl hovering and it swoops down into the ground, for example, that you might see when you're driving home, you know, you'll see that it's the story that we're trying to tell is happening over there. Do you know what I mean? It's like the, the events that we created and the, the, the situation these animals find themselves in is very real. What was the experience like working with a streamer? Netflix were fantastic. Um, I mean, that's the... That's the short of it. I mean, they, they really embrace uh, filmmakers to make the films they want to make, which is liberating, I have to say. And I think, you know, of course they have their, you know, they, they have some things they question, and but what's so good about them is it's a conversation. So, you know, we can talk very openly and, you know, I was able to put my case across of why I was trying to do something. And, and often if we didn't agree, we would we would always make a really happy compromise. And it was never detriment of the show it was always like and often nine times out of ten when i explained what our intent was and why it was it was they were like great go for it and i, I think that was just amazing and the fact that you know the shows don't have to hit a given time frame they don't have to be x duration they can kind of be the duration they you want the shows to be which is brilliant because sometimes you make a show and you have to sort of stretch out a few minutes just to make the the time up which is you know what you don't want to ever have to do so that was fantastic and I think as well, the other thing with Netflix is we, I'm a real tech head and, you know, I love the fact that they're pushing technology. We, we mastered the show in HDR. We delivered it in Dolby Atmos. Most of the images were captured around the 7 and 8K mark in terms of resolution. And I love the fact that they're really, you know, have a very keen eye on their technology. And it's often said that pandemics accelerate changes that are already already happening with regards to tech and tech's impact on factual television how do you see that changing in the next few years yeah i mean i mean we're, we've always been on the very forefront of technology i mean that that again sort of harks back to our natural history days where you know we would always get the new, newest and latest uh, cameras or you know whatever technology camera moving technology and we'd always tend to fuse it with something that was never done before so we put this lens on that camera and mounted to that thing and people you know it was like oh blimey we never knew anyone would do that and that's kind of what was so exciting about making natural history because that was kind of a daily occurrence and i think you know we very much adopt that uh, idea now 
for me, it's more about, you know, the physics of uh, image capture are kind of there. You know, yes, we can go up in resolution, but arguably uh, it gets to a point where it doesn't give you anything. It doesn't aid your storytelling. It doesn't really improve your, you know, user experience really beyond 8K, I don't think. But what I do think in terms of post-production, you know, with things like the Unreal game engine and those that virtual production aspect, that is a game changer. And I think the way that that could be integrated into production lines is revolutionary and will have a, the option to kind of change the landscape of, of content creation. And on Unreal, I've spoken to animation producers who have used that um, as a way to, I think, render shows quicker than they normally would be able to. How does it work with other types of TV? Well, we, we use it very much as a pre-visualization tool. Um, when well, we've used it for quite some time, uh, works brilliantly in commercials for basically, and we're actually doing a commercial right now where we're previsiting what a forest setup will look like. And rather than doing it in the traditional storyboard method, we're using it, the Unreal Engine, and the, you know, we'll be able to spin around 360, zoom in, show the clients, you know, what the environment's going to be like. It's also um, twinned with uh, phases of the sun so you can actually dial in exactly what time of day you'd be there at that exact point and through longitude and latitude it tells you the exact where the shadows will be and what it what's it like if it's an overcast day it's like it's just an incredible resource um, and it kind of takes pre-production to the next level for us that, that's how we use it currently I'm definitely looking to use it as a way of telling stories going forward in terms of its uh, image quality and its the other capabilities. So it's one of those things that we always are looking at um, new technologies. We used to make a lot of stereo 3D shows. Um, obviously that technology didn't carry on, but actually a lot of the understanding and deep rooted understanding that we have of that genre, that kind of uh, equipment is actually translating quite well into Unreal. Finally, so you work across commercials, factual TV, documentaries and feature films previously. In terms of how the pandemic is impacting those, are you seeing more commercial work come in, for example? Or are you, are you doubling down on factual commissions, for example, because commissioners maybe want some quick turnaround shows? I think, I think for us, we're seeing caution across the board, actually. We're very fortunate that we've got some commercials work that's come back on. I mean, obviously, all of this requires people at the top of the chain to spend money. And we're fortunate enough that some projects that we should have already completed by now were paused and have come back. So we're, we're really thankful and respectful that we've got that. Um, I think it all depends, um, to be honest, on production as a whole, because you know a lot of our work is remote and abroad and that's the thing that's certainly taken down a lot of our work for this year we kind of saw within 48 hours a whole year's worth of work disappear now there's loads of conversations we're having about that coming back and being pushed into 2021 um some are coming back towards the end of this year but there's still just this huge question mark of will it will it come back are we gonna have a second wave etc so i think we're going to go for a, a phase of real caution certainly till christmas um, and we just have to take it day by day. And I think what's good about our industry is the fact that I think we are in a sector where, you know, people do need content. We, you know, people, more people are watching Netflix than ever, I imagine, because of the, you know, the lockdown. So I think it's just, we're in this blip. And I think 
I think we just all need to navigate our way through it and just make sure that on the other end, we don't get into a kind of price war where, you know, I hope that it's the right people are making the right content rather than the people who are prepared to undercut. I think 2021 is going to be really busy. Um, I just hope that we can all get there. Jonathan Jones. That's all for today's episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and on social media. Thanks for listening.